Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc. Today, we are interviewing John Wolf. He is the CEO of Pyramid Healthcare. He has been in the space since the 1980s, built his first small program in the 1990s, and now owns one of the largest providers um, in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and multiple states. So we're talking to him about growth strategies, as well as mergers and acquisitions, and what he looks for in a program he's looking to acquire. Before we jump into the conversation, I, as always, I want to thank our great sponsors, Verify TX. The Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Verify TX, the leading on-demand insurance verification platform for the recovery industry. When seconds can make the difference between admitting a qualified client or losing them to a change of heart, a competitor, or worse, Verify TX gives your team the tools they need to save a life. Available 24-7, 365 from any device. Start by seeing the 15-minute demo today at verifytx.com and be sure to mention the Recovery Executive Podcast for a special offer. We recommend Verify TX to all of our providers. It's a great, fast resource to check online and see if a VOB is going to come back for you. And if you know John Wagner, he was also on this show and did a podcast. And so I recommend checking out my podcast with him to learn more about their service and his model of business. Uh, Okay, getting back to John here. John is a fabulous resource. I saw him and met him in Phoenix during the treatment investment and valuation retreat. And he blew me away in terms of just the level of ethics and professionalism and operational knowledge that he brings to the table within the behavioral health space. Um, His presentation and his approach and his way of doing business was very refreshing. And it was focused on, as we'll talk about, many of the qualitative elements that are a key to success for building a sustainable behavioral health practice and a growing behavioral health practice. It's not just about the numbers. And so I really am excited to have him on the show, have him kind of walk around what he looks for in terms of risk, what he looks for in terms of good providers, and some of the challenges of combining his organization with other organizations, and just kind of some of the trends in the field as well. So With that, let's listen to what he has to say. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Hey, John, welcome to the show here. I really appreciate you coming on. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and Pyramid? Sure. Uh, Pyramid Healthcare is based in Pennsylvania, where our corporate offices are, but uh, we provide services in five states and uh, today have 88 behavioral health treatment facilities in those five states. Really the largest uh, private behavioral health provider in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And we really offer a full continuum of services. Uh, have a network of uh, 57 outpatient, um, both uh, drug-free and medication-assisted treatment programs, and then 18 residential uh, treatment centers, detoxification and rehabilitation. It's over a thousand beds. Uh, and then offer some uh, other kinds of uh, behavioral health services. Um, we do have six eating disorder facilities and have seven uh, schools for severely autistic children. So a uh, pretty, pretty large, pretty diverse behavioral health care company in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, North Carolina, Maryland, and Georgia. Wow. And I believe you guys have something like over 2,000 employees. Is that right? Yeah, we're really about 2,400 at this point in time. Right. 
And how long have you been with the company or what aspects of the growth have you been there for? <laughs> well, I started the company back in 1999, back uh, one facility, one employee, uh, and so it's been it's been quite a credit growth story. I actually go all the way back to I started running freestanding behavioral health treatment facilities back in 1984. So uh, you might get a sense that it's a little bit of gray hair. Uh, <laughs> But uh, it's been a long ride. I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot. <laughs> so that's one of the things I definitely want to cover on the show here. And I know that listeners are very interested in hearing that girl's story and what you've done. But I want to ask you a question on something I saw in one of your videos on your site. But you mentioned trust. And we actually, I actually talk a lot about trust on the show and how important it is in marketing and business and specifically in this space. You made a comment that your role or your company's role is really to be stewards of the trust that is placed in you by patients and their families. And I just wanted to ask if you could elaborate a little bit on that and how that builds into your business model and how do you think it's actually been helpful in the success that you've had? Yeah, but that's that's a very interesting question. You know, our clients who come to us, both both the patients and their families, they're very, very vulnerable. It's, it's a difficult time for them. And there's a, there's a lot of confusion out there in the marketplace. There's a lot of providers now. You know, go back to the days when there are very few providers. Today, there's a lot of providers. There's a lot of options. And um, we, they really need to trust us, as do the payers of care. Um, the people who send us our clients need to trust that we have quality first and foremost in our minds and that's what we're trying to deliver. And we're trying to be honest in the delivery of that. That uh, and and so there are a lot of things that go into that. You know, we don't we don't buy and sell patients. We don't have the the wrong motivation for a patient coming into our facility. It's it, it's interesting that we we do have very large call centers, but um, you know we don't we don't ever sell a call and we never buy a call and. The vast majority, though, of calls that we get, we don't take into our system ourselves, mostly because we don't have any space. We run pretty much full all the time. So um, we we refer people out, and we, we spend a lot of time trying to vet the, ref- the people that we make referrals to so that we're, we can assure the clients who come to us that we can't serve, that they're going to a place that you know, it has the best quality of care that we've identified what their needs are, and we're we're sending them to the place that has the level of care that they need, that has the quality that they need, and that um, we, we don't have some other motivation for sending them to that particular place. So, you know, I think that's just one facet of uh, of you know the, the the trust that clients and referral sources and payers give to us that we need to be very careful with. And, and I think over time, um, if you don't do that over time, I think that that really harms you, you know, professionally, um, um, ideologically, and, and ultimately from a business perspective. It's just, it's the foundation that you have to be based on. I love that. You know, I've said before on this show, but for me, I think probably for yourself as well, from what I hear is business is the process of adding value to the world, right? And value is created in a lot of ways. Financial is one piece of that, but it's community, it's society, it's environment. And I think I agree with you 100% completely. If you do that right, that creates a sustainable long-term business that's going to be successful. Might be a little bit harder in the beginning, but in the end, it'll work out for you. Yeah, 
Exactly. And unfortunately, there's been, there, there honestly have been, as you know, a lot of, you know, very unscrupulous practices that have taken place in our industry. And, and it's really hurt our industry in a, in, a, in a large way. And I think we're starting to see the tide turn, fortunately, um, in, in that. And, and we're sort of re- regaining our composure, I think, in ethics and uh, hopefully are weeding out some of the unscrupulous players and practices. Um, but they are still going on, unfortunately. But they all, all always will to some extent. Yeah, right. I mean, in healthcare, that's always been the case too. But I mean, I think for a while there, we thought it was all going to disappear really fast, and it didn't. <laughs> and so now we're just kind of yep. like, come on, let's let's move this along. Uh, so, okay, one of the things that we really wanted to kind of cover is I saw you in Phoenix. You gave a, an amazing presentation there at the Treatment Investment Valuation Retreat, and you talked a lot about mergers and acquisitions that you're doing. So just as a little bit of background for Pyramid, what kind of percentage of the growth that you were doing is acquisitions versus like De Nova Construction? Yeah, um, we've, we've done at this point uh, about 11 acquisitions. And um, so, and but we've we've had a, a tremendous amount of de novo growth as well. So I would say that probably seventy um, percent of our growth has been uh, acquisition growth, and, and the remainder forty has been kind of de novo. Um, and it's, it's been very situational. Um, and and I think actually, you know, that ha- having a nice mix with de novo. Um, and acquisition growth is is really a good thing for a company. If, if you know when you're going to valuation periods of valuation and possible sale, um, to, to be able to show that you've done both and can do both, I think is an important thing. So one of the really interesting comments that you made and going back to the trust factor that we were just talking about is, you know, when a lot of business owners, especially in the treatment space, are looking to sell, they're looking at their numbers. They're looking at cost per acquisitions, lengths of stay, things like that. Um, But you mentioned that you specifically look for alignment in philosophy and culture with their business fundamentals. Can you talk a bit about why and how that translates into value for Pyramid? You know, I think maybe two of the most important things um, are, you know, it's about growth. So um, we try to, when we're looking at a company, we we try to find a company that believes in growth, that they kind of, you know, have a growth trajectory. More often than not, um, they're impinged or, uh, you know, prevented from growth because they just don't have the capital. And that's what we can bring to them. Um, so, you know, we look for a coherent growth strategy, a real growth strategy. As I said in our presentation, sometimes people have these pretty far-flung, not well thought out, uh, <laughs> just throw it against the wall kind of growth strategies. Okay, that doesn't work. <laughs> it has to be realistic. Um, and uh, but but a management team ideally that really embraces growth. Um, and, and I think the other thing is, um, a management team and a company that really believes in quality, um, and tries to have that built in because it's a, it's a very tough thing to, you know, we, we've acquired some companies that are maybe not for profits and maybe they have sort of little different philosophies. Um, and, um, it's really tough to change the culture. It takes a long time. Um, and, 
if they don't have a fundamental belief in delivering very high quality services, they don't have a fundamental belief in that, that what they're doing is really great and they really want to do more of it and they want to grow the company. Um, if they don't have those two, it, it can be really tough to, to turn it around. It could take a long time. Um, you know, culture, culture is a tough thing to change. Uh, you know, so you have to be careful there. Yeah. You know, before I started the marketing company, I used to do a lot of turnarounds in schools and that was always my number one challenge was the culture. And sometimes you just kind of had to swap it out in my experience where I just had to really switch out a, a big chunk of the team. Um, or sometimes it was just a long process of really sitting down with everyone, you know, getting the pulse of how they were feeling, what was going on and trying to align them with a new vision that was more in line with what would be both successful as a business, but successful for our students and everything. Yeah. The state, a great example is the state actually asked us to step in. They were closing a provider for terrible service. And it had been going on for far too long. The state finally took their license away and said, but we, we think we need this service. Can you come in and acquire these folks? And even they, they you know, knew that we could turn it around, and we did. And we acquired them, and we turned it around. But you know, four years later, um, there were <laughs> yeah. still people referring to the old name of the facility. There were still people that we couldn't convince, no, we've just totally changed this place, and it's not what it was. And and they didn't believe it. So that, you know, a, a place that has a bad reputation can just unfairly stay with it for a very long time. Yeah, right. That reputation is huge. When you've done the mergers and acquisitions, I know this is going to be a large challenge for a lot of companies, but any lessons that you've learned um, in that process of helping teams merge from, you know, sometimes slightly, sometimes greatly different cultures? Yeah, well, A, it takes time. Um, and if you try to rush it, you can screw it up pretty easily. Um, I think you have to really focus on the, the fundamentals um, that we're, you know, A, we're going to deliver the highest quality, B, we're really here to help as many people as possible, C, it's about access, the biggest problem in our industry is that people don't get the care that they need. And our, our job is to try to reduce the barriers to obtaining treatment. And it's, it's really easy to be kind of lazy about that and not be um, aggressive, if you will. Maybe that's not a great word, um, in opening your doors and making sure that the phone get ans- gets answered, making sure that you have uh, available assessment slots. Um, make, you know, reducing all the barriers, as we know, because of the denial associated with our disease that um, people people may call and they just look for a reason not to come into treatment. It's a, you know, it's obviously a strange disease in that regard, and you have to reduce all of those barriers. Um, so, in that, you know, that, that can be, you know, difficult sometimes to... Um, you know, to an organization that's kind of not really had that that kind of philosophy. It's just been, you know, kind of, you know, laid back in terms of, um, you know, we were out here to try to help as many people as possible and reduce those barriers. So you know, I think we've, we've in this particular example of, of some struggles that we've had in that regard in the past. So when you're going to look at an acquisition of a new program, what are some of the key factors that you'll take into account? Yeah, well, um, 
of course, um, the, it, 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 it's, it's rates, you know, do they have sustainable rates? That's always a good question. What are the payers and um, are those payers open to the growth? Because um, we're obviously going to, it's, it's about growth and we're going to want to grow. Um, we, you know, we often look for things that they aren't doing well. A lot of providers don't, again, have great call center um, performance. Um, I, I'll give you an interesting example. We used to take all of our calls in our outpatient centers at the outpatient, at each one of the outpatient centers, and we slowly we moved them into the call center so that all the calls would come into the call center. And what we found is that every time we did it, and we did it like 20 times, every time we did it, um, the number of calls increased by one-third. And so what does that tell you? The, the calls just weren't getting answered at the outpatient centers, that people were busy doing other things. They were treating the clients. And the, the phone just rang sometimes, and no one answered it and didn't answer it appropriately. And so... Um, so you you know you can increase your business by a third by moving it into a professional call center. So we we look for opportunities like that um, with an existing provider. Um, you know we we look for leadership. Um, you know how is the leadership? Is it strong? You it can really slow you down if you have to re- replace you know some significant portions or all of the leadership team. Um, and so, um, ha- having great leadership in place is something that we definitely look for. Um, can, you know, can the, um, target benefit from a lot of our back office services? How are they doing with billing and collecting? Can we improve on that in a significant way? Um, do, again, do they have a coherent growth strategy and why haven't they grown? maybe as, as fast uh, as they could have. And if we provide the capital, can that really ignite um, market growth? And so, yeah, what is the growth opportunities in the marketplace is another, uh, I think, big area that, w- that we look at in particular. Um, so, you know, I would say those are, those are probably the key areas for us. Do you look at any numbers in terms of, like, I'll always recommend, you know, you should be looking at like 30 beds per 100,000 population or something like that. And, you know, do you have any metrics in place like that that you guys are analyzing for the, the area demographics versus just the center itself? We do. And it's not just the beds. You've got to stratify by types of beds. You know, are they in network? Are they out of network? You know, try to try to get some rate information you can to find out. You know, what are the price points of different providers? Um, but yeah, we we certainly look at the competition when we go into the area. That's that's absolutely key and critical. We've we've you know walked away from a lot of potential deals because we just felt that it was it was too crowded in the marketplace. Um, we certainly look at population statistics. We are a Medicaid provider, pretty significant Medicaid provider, so we'll look at uh, we'll look at a lot of Medicaid um, statistics, uh, Medicaid population areas, um, you know, other providers that are serving that population. Sometimes there's there's a lot of maybe a lot of beds in an area, but they just aren't doing a great job, and so we've got to try to assess the quality of other providers as well. So. Sure, we've got the numbers, and you look at the metrics, but um, I think you also have to kind of look under the sheets a little bit and see 
uh, you know, that sort of next level of detail about what, what's going on in the mar- marketplace, if that makes sense. I mean, I think you always have to have the quantitative match with the qualitative, right? It's got to be got to be the two parts working together. You mentioned the Medicaid. That's always, I think, um, an interesting topic that nobody was looking at enough, and now people are. I mean, because that's really the primary need a lot of the time. A lot of providers would not be able to take Medicaid just based on their operational overhead. You know, would you have any advice on kind of the operations end of things in terms of bringing costs down that would allow for uh, Medicaid contracts to make sense? Yeah, well, like almost any business, probably on some level, your costs, your overhead costs are reduced by scale, um, which is um, tough for some providers to to get, right? Um, So because we have such large scale, um, I think we're able to deliver a lower um, per unit cost of service. Um, But on the other hand, I uh, I think a lot of providers have been really careless about their costs. And uh, this, you know, this, this isn't an easy. A lot of people have gotten into this business thinking, "Oh, this is really easy." Well, it's not. It's a very complex um, healthcare service to deliver. Um, it's it's uh, it's really easy to uh, waste money, um, and it's just easy to spend a lot of money on things that you shouldn't spend it on. So, I think you just just really have to take a good hard look at, at your cost structure. And um, we've, but even when we were a small company, we started this company delivering predominance of Medicaid services, and um, and we were able to generate profit doing that. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's not like it's impossible to do. Um, you just have to kind of know what you're doing and be careful. Um, you know, scale helps. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned I. One of the things that really impressed me about you was you had all this expertise, right? You had all these kind of platforms. You said like the backend billing and the call center and all these things that you brought to the table when you acquire a new program. And we work with a couple other private equity firms or sometimes they'll reach out to us. And a lot of them try to get into this space almost purely as a financial play without having those specific value-added services that I think are often much needed by a lot of programs. But I just wonder if you had any comments around acquisitions in general, you know, coming from maybe a group that doesn't have the operational expertise that you guys have. Yeah, be careful. <laughs> My first. Um, you know, there there's growing competition. Um, I've been around long enough to know and that you know, in, in industries have uh, growth trajectories, and then they run through periods of decline, and that it's it's cyclical. Every industry is like that, and uh, our industry is the same way. That we're getting more and more competitors. I think in some areas, like the out of network space, that um, there are a lot of competitors that are struggling. It's like we're already starting to see. The secular nature nature of that, where it's coming around that the competition is getting too hard for some some providers in the outer network space, and they're going out of business. So, to the extent that you have built in the infrastructure, um, you you really, I think, insulate yourself more um, from the um, cyclical nature of uh, of any industry. But for instance. 
um, our call in our calls. We've built a call center. We've been very, very careful about building an exceptionally um, productive and um, you know state of the art call center. And we take at this point over um, 300,000 calls a year. So we're really able, our objective is to be able to generate all of the business we need from our own call center and have to rely, you know, not nearly as much on, um, you know, outside source referrals. Um, even though, uh, if, you know, I think another aspect of it is we have, a, a, uh, at this point, I think it's 28 um, direct uh, in the field um, community relations re representatives. These are clinical people who are out in the field developing relationships and um, who are, um, you know, bringing people in for tours, who are helping explain the clinical quality and why we do a better job. And it's much harder to compete against us because we have relationships built, one-to-one -one relationships out there. And, you know, you can always spend more money on Internet advertising. Uh, someone can always outspend you, but it's a lot harder for people to build relationships and, and take business away from you. So I think you've got to build in sort of these, these fundamental um, um, vehicles, if you will, um, to, uh, you know, build, build a base of business that really can't be easily taken away from you. Um, and that, that's what we've tried to do. So, yeah, if you just come in on a financial play and, and there, you know, there really isn't any, um, any of these systems in the company, then I think you're at great risk. Yeah, I agree. I think what I've seen is, I mean, in any business, you're trying to create like a moat around it, right? And that's reputation, that's brand. It's this ability of creating trust within a community um, or a reputation among different areas of the country or different market demographics, you know, where people are not going to go somewhere else because they already know you. And that might be one-on-one -on -one relationships. It might be different versions of marketing that you're doing. And I think a healthy program is one that has multiple drivers, right? You can't just rely on internet advertising. You can't just rely on business development on its own. You know, you have to have all these different drivers because each one will fluctuate over time and you, you have to kind of pull the different level, levers, right? If you see one going down, another going up, well, you got to shift some budget around, you know, but I, I think people aren't nuanced enough in their strategies sometimes. And it sounds like you guys have a, a good mix there. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know, when it comes to acquisitions, um, the acquiring company, um, be it a strategic or uh, private equity, it, it comes down to risk. Sort of at the end of the day, it's it's growth potential and risk. Those are the two things. And to the extent that you can mitigate the risk, reduce the risk, I think the valuation goes up. Um, and you, we, we've looked at companies, and they're they have you know one or two or three referral sources. They have one or two payers. Um, huge risk in that. Um, you know what what happens if you upset this particular referral source? You know what happens if this payer decides to, to change their strategy about where they want care delivered, or they want to start referring to somebody else? Um, you know, a, big, a huge chunk of your business goes away. Um, and so it, it's really fun, you know, looking at it through the eyes of an acquirer and trying to see 
um, how you can reduce the risk of your company in their eyes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We had one client where they had over 50% of their admissions were coming in from a single business development representative and two particular um, contracts or agreements or whatever. And things went south with that rep. He disappeared. They lost the contracts. And suddenly what they've been relying on for over 10 years um, is no longer there. And they sent a, you know, under 50% census all of a sudden. Um, so you're you right. Great example. Yep. What are some other risk factors that you're looking at when you're looking at um, acquiring another operator? Um, yeah, the, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things. As I said, you know, we, we just covered diversity of, diversity of services. Are they providing a very narrow um, service? Uh, again, that, that could be easy to compete against. Um, uh, are they providing to a very narrow band of payers? Um, are the very narrow band of referral sources? Um, are they really serious about compliance? You know, these days, um, compliance, particularly in the public space, is is huge, and um, we really look hard at um, have they do they have a great compliance program in place? Um, and what is the compliance risk? Again, it, it goes back to reducing risk. And if I'm going to be hit, you know, with a compliance going backward or going forward uh, with a, you know, very expensive uh, compliance take back, that's a problem. Um, and the same thing, I think, falls with the IT infrastructure. I, you know, in my talk in Arizona, I talked a lot about security and IT. And we see the threats um, increasing every day. Um, you know the the phishing that's happening, the malware, uh, uh, just the, the vast majority. I think it was like ninety five percent of all the emails that come into our system actually are are um, not permitted to come into our servers because um, they're you know suspect. Um, so there's so much opportunity to have you know, bad things happen with this very valuable uh, client information that we have, patient information. Um, that you have to really mitigate the, the, the risk in the IT. So how sturdy are the, um, the IT systems? Um, so we, we take a good, hard look at that. Um, so, I, you know, I would, think, I would think that would be a lot of it. As you said, you, you know, diversity in sales, um, um, diversity in referral streams, how many, you know, how much of their business is coming from the Internet versus... Um, from other sources, and you don't want to have too much reliance on the internet. Um, I think that's some of the big areas we look at these days. Can we dig a little bit deeper into compliance? Like, what, what are some specifics maybe that you're referring to there? Yeah, are you are you doing self audits? Um, are you self reporting? Um, uh, again, is it, are you? Um, Really, do you have a system to look at the charts and to dive into the details? Not only in, um, you know, are are the the charts documenting the care that you're delivering and that you're billing for, but are the charts of sufficient quality? Because it's it's not just a is it there metric, you know, is is a group note there, is an individual note there, is a treatment plan there, but it's is it of sufficient quality 
to document what you're billing for. Um, and uh, so, what, you know, and, and what does that look like? And is it organized? Um, you know, we, we run a, a, have a big data site where we document all of our um, self-reviews. We document any time a payer comes in to review. Um, that's, you know, that's up there. The results of that are up on the site for every one of our subsidiary companies so that um, that uh, payers and, and ultimately purchasers can come in and find that all in one neat place. Um, you know, do the, and, and then, all, you know, are we, are we meeting all the standards that uh, the government uh, indicates that you should have in terms of compliance program, you know, stated policies? Are you training your staff? Are your, um, um, are your vendors included in that? Do you have a third party um, line, independent line where, you know, employees can make calls to if there's a compliance issue? You know, does that go around the management and go directly to the board? Um, and so, the, you know, these things aren't, aren't a secret. I mean, you know, the government publishes their requirements for a robust compliance program. And, and you need to hit every one of those and hit them well, um, or you're just really increasing the risk. What's your advice for a smaller program? Because obviously as a, as a larger provider with many locations, you have the scale to put that in place. But I imagine that would have been really hard back when you just had your first center. You know, can you give some advice around that? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, we even did it very well back then. And it's just that you have to put priority to it and you, you're going to have to spend some money on it. Um, one thing that helps these days is there are a lot of software programs that, you know, for instance, in, in all of our facilities, we share one common um, client record, patient record. And so we, my compliance people can get into any record anywhere um, sitting from their office. So we can do compliance audits very easily across the whole company and we, and um and which, uh, you know, you, you have to be able to have to invest in an IT infrastructure that allows you to be able to do that if you have multiple sites or if you have one site. Um, and, and most at this point, I think most companies have, a, have at least a basic IT system that they can get in and, um, you know, and, and look at electronic records pretty readily and evaluate what's being done. But there's no way around it. You have to spend some money on it. You have to make it a priority. Uh, yeah. Um, so we're kind of talking about these acquisitions, but you guys said you do a lot of de novo builds as well. You know, what goes into that decision-making process, whether you are going to acquire or build? Yeah. One of the questions is, is the service, you know, is, is, is there anybody there to acquire? <laughs> That's probably one of the biggest problems um, in a lot of areas. It's just there is no one uh, to acquire. Um and you know the de novos. I mean, always take a long time, particularly in residential care. It's interesting. We just opened a new facility in um, in the Scranton Wilkes-Barre area. We actually had the open house last week, and uh, I, I commented that the first time we looked at that facility was February of 2014. Um, so you know, essentially, you know, five years later, we opened the facility. Um, and that, that's not, I mean, that's a little bit longer than most, but it can easily take two to three years to develop a residential, a, a decent sized de novo residential facility. Um, zoning, land use, 
all of that. Um, outpatient obviously can take a lot shorter period of time. Um, and uh, so there, you know, can be, be a little bit more nimble about developing those. But um, yeah, if, if we, you know, if you're trying to develop a de novo facility, I think you have to look at it, are the payers, uh, do they have open um, networks? Are, you, are they going to let you in their network, you know, um, it be it Medicaid or Blue Cross, um, some of the other big payers? Um, and, and what are the existing rates? And are they going to be willing to give you, you know, a rate that, that you can that can live on? Sometimes we made acquisitions um, because the, the rates in the, the company that we were going to acquire were really so good um, that um, we, we sort of, you know, made the acquisition for, for the rate. Um, in others, we've decided to de novo because possible acquisition targets just had horrible rates and we didn't think that we could live with those. Um, so those are some of the factors we we look at. Um, and then, of course, there's reputation um, that we talked a little bit about earlier um, in, ter in terms of acquisition or doing de novo. So we think somebody has a particularly great reputation or a bad reputation. It's interesting, in, in pretty much all of the acquisitions we've made, we've kept their names. Um, because we've really looked for good companies, not struggling companies, and we feel that they have a presence in the market and their name means something. And so we're a company that's built on um, 11 different brands. And uh, so I, I think a lot of people don't know who Pyramid Healthcare is because in their particular community, we're not Pyramid Healthcare. We're, we're a brand that they've known for a long time under a different name. But it, it all falls under the Pyramid Healthcare umbrella. They're just a subsidiary. Um, so, uh, so I suppose that's our that's a big part of our strategy. Create company with a good brand, and uh, leave it in place. When you're doing a de novo build, what's your expectation in terms of ballparks around like the expected amount of capital to get it up and running, and then the length of time towards you know having it become actually profitable? Yeah. Well, we. Yeah, each de novo is different. Um, I, I suppose take the amount of money that you think you're going to spend and multiply by three, <laughs> <laughs> and and probably the same thing for the time. Uh, you know, take the time you think it's going to take and multiply by by three. Um, it's uh, again, this is this is a complex business. A lot of hurdles to jump. Uh, zoning hurdles, regulatory hurdles, getting approved by payers. Um, it's um, you know it's it, it just it's it's complex to um, to do de novo de novo builds, but you have to have to stay with it. Um, you know, do do a lot of do a lot of homework, and then um, get ready to uh, you know be faced with a lot of hurdles and be very persistent um, over a period of time. You know, you'll get there. Um, and I think look for look for help from the community. I mean, if you uh, if you don't have buy-in from um, a, a lot of community leaders, um, you know, city fathers and people in the criminal justice system and other payers, going to be really fighting an uphill battle on a, on a de novo build. You mentioned the payer rates as a big factor for you guys. Any advice or recommendations on how to um, negotiate better rates? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, what we've tried to do in, in most cases is try to show um, 
payers that they're spending a lot of money in other places, like in the emergency rooms, um, in psychiatric or substance abuse admissions to acute care hospitals where they might be paying $3,000 a day. And, you know, we're, you know, we might be able to offer that service at $250 a day or $300 a day. And um, to, to try to point out that we're a great return on investment and we can help reduce their cost, not increase their cost. Um, and uh, so, so try to go in with as much information um, uh, about where they're spending their money elsewhere, but also try to help them understand that we don't, we don't try to provide just one service in a community. We try to provide a vertically integrated system of care that ideally has, has residential services, has outpatient services, has multiple levels of outpatient care, partial IOP outpatient, and that we will work with the payer to make sure that the client is treated at the most appropriate level of care um, and reduce the cost and uh, you know flow the client uh, up and down uh, the levels of care, you know, keep keeping the cost to an absolute minimum while delivering the appropriate level of care, um, and and I think that's really what they're what they're looking for. And at the end of the day, um, is to, to have that you know integrated system of care to try to reduce their costs. So, are you taking outcomes data to those kind of conversations? What kind of outcomes tracking do you do internally? Yeah, we, we absolutely are. Um, I, I think that we're taking, you know, abstinence data with us. Um, we're taking um, improvement in, you know, in subscales of um, aid satisfaction and um, self-reported or clinician-reported improvement in treatment. Um, we're taking information about um, our clients stable in their um, housing, um, in employment. We're taking um, relapse and readmission rates. Um, we've actually worked in, in several cases with the payers, and we've relied on them to generate um, data about readmission rates because they're the ones that you know have that data in their system. And um, and a lot of payers are starting to do that. They're starting to compare providers um, with metrics like readmission rates, and they generate the data. And then you know they'll. I'm just thinking one study just came out a couple of weeks ago where they compared us against nine other providers in terms of readmission rates. And um, and you know we we compare very favorably, which is what you want to do. Um, so. You know, that's, you know, the kind of data that, um, that they're increasingly looking at and that you want to want them to participate in, you know, ideally. That makes sense. Yeah. Are you doing a lot of that outcomes tracking internally or do you work with a, a third party for, you know, a different level of objectivity? Um, we're, we're doing it internally for the most part, because, you know, because we've got enough scale to be able to do that. We have our own. Um, um, clinical quality department um, run by uh, uh, you know a, a, a part-time uh, car surveyor and a PhD and uh, and so we do a lot of our own kind of research if you will and um, internal quality um, and outcomes tracking so but you know I, again if you're smaller you can't do that you have to rely on third party without question but 
we have enough scale for that. Yeah. I'm just curious because I'm a marketing guy. Do you actually take any of the outcomes data and then use that either in your community outreach or your marketing materials? Absolutely. Absolutely we do. That makes sense. Yeah, I've been trying to get more people to do that, but I haven't seen it much, so I'm always curious. Um, going back a little bit, you know, to the acquisition process, you know, obviously, so you identify a program that you're looking to acquire, and then you engage in a due diligence process. What are some deal breakers that you've come across as you've engaged in that due diligence process? Yeah, we've, we've walked away from a couple of deals um, based on compliance questions. We just thought there was really too much risk out there. Um, and um, so that, you know, that's one. I think another one is the, the current owners just aren't ready. Um, and, you know, you start, to, you start to get into that and you really feel like the owner's kind of wishy-washy. And, and particularly, you know, selling your company is really hard work. It, it, when you start to go through the due diligence process, I mean, it's, it's, it can be brutally hard. A lot of data being collected. If they're doing it right, if the buyer's doing it right, they're going to collect a lot of data. And, um, and you have to really believe that this is what you want to do as a seller. And and that you're going to have a you know a second job essentially in addition to your your main job of running your company is to gather all this data and explain it. Um, and oftentimes, um, not oftentimes, but sometimes it's just clear the owner's just not ready for that, and um, and that sort of washes out pretty quickly. Um, again, we've we've kind of walked away from deals I think when we felt like. Um, there wasn't enough referral source support to expand um, as we've sort of dived into more detail on the marketplace and we've talked about expansion and some payers referral sources really aren't indicative that they're going to be open to that. Um, and we've kind of backed off of some deals. Um, so I, I would say that's, that's probably most of it. Um, you know, we've had some deals where the leadership has left where uh, the leadership wanted to leave. Um, so I mean, looking for great leadership um, is, is important, but it's not absolutely critical. Um, you know, if you have to go out and find new leaders, um, um, then, you know, it is what it is, but you kind of know that going in, which we usually do. So that, that's often actually not a factor. You just have to know, you know, is the owner going to stay or go? How important are they to the company? Uh, um, we have balked at a, a couple of things because we felt like the owner was absolutely critical to the company and maybe a couple of the managers and they weren't going to stay. And we thought that, uh, that the business was built around them and could really suffer if they were gone. So we've looked askance at a couple of deals with that. Yeah, I've seen that before, you know, especially with the smaller kind of mom and pop, as, as we call them, um, operators. You know, sometimes there's kind of like a, a charismatic audience almost built around a particular owner <laughs> where they're supporting the, the program. So you mentioned the owners here, you know, struggling that this becomes a full-time job. And I think sometimes you'll find owners that will think they can do it on their own. But, you know, you mentioned that having key partners in place for M&As and investment is really important. Can you talk about what you look for in an M&A firm or an investment partner? Yeah, well, I, I think in terms of um, um, an investment banker, the person that's going to kind of facilitate the deal um, I think you really want to feel comfortable that they understand 
your market that you're in and your particular vertical. Maybe, you know, you have more in-source in services or autism services um, or out-of-network, and so you really want to understand that they've done multiple deals in your space and how successful were they and multiple deals in your particular vertical um, are, are really critical. Um, and, and, and in your size as well, um, you know, you don't, you don't want this to be a huge stretch for them. Um, having not done a deal, you know, if you have a really, a really big deal. Um, and also sometimes your deal might be too small for a bigger company and they're not going to put the resources to or toward it. And, and again, I think that's the other thing is you really need to be sure what resources they're going to commit to it. And sometimes, um, you know, uh, uh, bankers will, um, you know, they bring the A team in to sort of sell you um, on on signing up with them, and then you kind of get the B team to run the deal, which is not what you want. So you want to be very clear about who is going to run our deal the whole way through, and are enough resources going to be put to it? Because putting together a a, a sale prospectus um, is is very time consuming. It's very difficult. I've seen a lot of really bad ones, um, and I've seen a few good ones. Um, and uh, so that you know, that's absolutely critical. They put the time into it, and then they commit to running a really quick process. You know, time kills all deals, so uh, you want a real commitment to um, people moving through the process really quickly. Um, so that that would be on the banker side. You know, I think on the acquisition side, on the and you look for acquirers that are of the same mind as you. If you're um, staying with a company in particular, um, you, you look for people that have, you know, this is healthcare. You want an investor to have a social conscience. You want them to, you know, believe in growth, um, but you want them to be understanding of your business. It's, it's a complex business. Do they understand how complex it is? I, you know, I, I tell one story about um, we were acquired by private equity back in 2011. Um, a um, private private equity crew came in to look at us, and you know they they had been looking at behavioral healthcare field for I mean, they'd done a lot of research probably for about three months, and um, they thought they knew more about behavioral healthcare than I did. You know, I've been running these facilities since 1984, so uh, you know, just not not the case. So. Um, our, um, uh, our private equity, um, owner right now just, I mean, they're the perfect example of a great partner. Um, they, you know, admit they, it's a complex business. We're the experts. They let us run it. Um, they provide sound guidance and advice. Um, they don't pretend that they know more than we do. Um, and they've been patient when they need to be patient and they've been impatient when they should be impatient. They've been very understanding. Um, they've really spent a lot of time trying to understand the business and, um, and you know, just uh, I, I think very reasonable in their approach and not just focused on the numbers, but they, you know, they really want to help people and, uh, and you know, so they have that social conscious as well. So, um, and, and I think the other thing is you've got to know, you know, who's controlling the shots. You know, if you have to understand uh, – if you're being acquired by another company, not a private equity owner, then you know what's the philosophy of their board? Who, um, what are their plans for you? Be really, really um, uh, cautious and detailed.
in that approach when you're looking at, at possible acquires. So. I think what I hear as a theme from you throughout this conversation is is really this important qualitative element through everything and finding good partners and looking at good acquisitions and building a good team. You know, it can't just be about the numbers. Would you agree? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, the number the numbers are the easy part in some level, but it's it's all the qualitative factors that really make the difference in uh, provision of behavioral health care services and probably health care in general. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, you mentioned the length of time for M&As and, you know, kind of these investment deals. You know, what would be a realistic time frame or time range to expect? Well, I think, um, you know, you probably take two or three months to find the right um, investment banker. And then they're going to take probably um, a month or two to create the investment book. And then um, when they put it out in the marketplace, I think you ideally really want to um, you know, go through first cut of interest, management presentations, you know, second, third cut of interest, final, um, final bids and selection. Um, Due, due diligence, you really need to try to get through that in 60 to 90 days if you can. Um, so I would say from start to finish, from the day you uh, start to look for an investment banker to help you um, to the day you sign, is going to be six months. Well, so f- my final question is just kind of a general one on your thoughts on the field. You know, you talked about the fact that this is a cyclical space, um, but, you know, we're seeing a lot of centers close last year. I think there's going to be a number closing this year, but there are also areas of the country that are doing very well, you know, like where you guys are operating. So just general thoughts on where you see the industry trending. Yeah, well, remember, okay, I go back to 1984. So I've, I've been part of an industry that was really – there was no funding. There were very few services. There was a general disregard for behavioral health care, in particular drug and alcohol treatment. And we've come a, a very, very long way now. Um, the, the funding is much better. Medicaid expansion has helped a tremendous amount. Um, I, I think this opioid epidemic, epidemic while it's, it's terrible, has really highlighted the need for more services, more providers, and more funding in our system. Um, the parity uh, laws. Um, the, the, it, it's, it's an industry that has very, a lot going for it today. It's a growth industry. There's just no question in my mind, and we're seeing that everywhere. States that had no services, had poor payment, um, are realizing that now, and they're changing those structures, and they're welcoming providers in where they've been closed forever. And um, so there, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity um, still in our industry um, in certain segments of it, like uh, out of network, um, where it's been just really easy for providers to open up shop, probably do a marginal job in some places, a good job. But um, payers are starting to close down on that. Um, and because there's just been so many providers in that marketplace, so much competition, we're starting to see a lot of providers in that space close. Um, so but that's just a little, a little tiny little segment of the marketplace. So, you know, we shouldn't think that that is um, 
indicative of the whole behavioral healthcare marketplace. I just think uh, it's a tremendous growth industry still and will be for, for really for quite some time to come. Yeah. Well, thanks for all your thoughts there, John. Any final thoughts or comments that you wanted to add about anything we've discussed? Boy, not really. I think we covered, <laughs> we covered a lot today. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. If listeners want to reach out to you or, or connect with Pyramid, what would be the best way to do that? Yeah, they can go online and see us. We're at pyramidhealthcarepa.com. And uh, we have a pretty, pretty robust website there. And actually, you can, uh, you can go and see all of our subsidiaries you know, through, through links. And um, so, you know, be happy to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, engage anybody through that, through that website. Fantastic. Well, I really thank you a lot for your time, John. Today was great. Uh, For all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social. And you can always find this podcast anywhere where podcasts are found. Tune in, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. to download or stream. So we thank you for joining us and look forward to connecting next time.